Hi everyone, Omer here. Welcome to Generation Squeezes Hard Truths Podcast. In this episode, you're going to be hearing Gen Squeezes Paul Kershaw interview Dr. D.T. Cochran from Canadians for Tax Fairness. Before we get to the interview, I just wanted to highlight that Gen Squeeze is a nonpartisan organization. We seek to work with people, parties, and policymakers from across the political divide. So while our guests will air a range of perspectives on this podcast, we want to be clear that Gen Squeeze does not necessarily endorse their views. And we'll continue to invite people from across the spectrum to join our conversations. And with that, let's get to the interview. Okay. Well, I'm delighted today to be hosting our Hard Truths podcast episode with Dr. D.T. Cochran, who is a talented thinker and spokesperson at the Canadians for Tax Fairness. Jen Squeeze has been collaborating with Canadians for Tax Fairness over the last couple of years, and that started uh, as part of our Solutions Lab as we were engaging people across various parts of the housing ecosystem, the fiscal ecosystem, to think about how we address generational unfairness issues in the prospects of addressing housing wealth inequality. So DT, welcome to our Hard Truths podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. As are we. To begin with, can you share a little bit about Canadians for Tax Fairness and uh, how did you end up there? Canadians for Tax Fairness is a progressive tax advocacy organization. Uh, We understand that taxes are essential for a properly functioning society. Taxes are important for providing governments with revenues for them to provide public services that are essential. Taxes are necessary as a way of redistributing wealth and income, uh, which market outcomes tend to skew um, towards ever greater inequality. Those outcomes aren't aligned with people's hard work or their virtue. And so we need public policy mechanisms uh, in order to to redistribute and taxes are the primary means that that we can do that. Uh, And so we advocate for taxes that will make our economy function better, be fairer, um, and allow government to provide the the necessary goods and services to people who couldn't access them if we just tried to leave everything to the market. Right, right. And uh, how did your career take you to Canadians for Tax Fairness? I'm always curious about how people land in these think tanks across the country. So when I went to university, I I went as a you know a progressively minded activist, and I was hearing economists making claims about how the economy worked, how the economy should work, and it seemed to really conflict with what I was concerned with. And one of my big concerns was corporate power. I saw corporations as having undue influence over our lives. And I thought we needed ways of kind of confronting that corporate power. And economists, the people who you'd think would be talking about this as an economic mechanism, didn't seem to be talking about it at all. They talked about these competitive markets where outcomes were just and efficient and fair. And I I guess being somewhat of a masochist decided that I would go into economics because you know they're they're the learned people and maybe they're right and I'm wrong so I'll go into economics and see if they can convince me that I'm I'm wrong uh, after my undergraduate degree, I was more convinced than ever that they were the ones that were wrong, that I was right, uh, and for some reason decided that I would give them one more kick at the can, so did a master's in economics. 
after my master's, I realized that really mainstream economic theory devotes itself to this non-existent fantasy world of perfect competition. And yes, economists will weigh in on what's going on in the real economy, but their reference is always this balancing of supply and demand within uh, a perfect market. And so their policy recommendations are always trying to get us closer to that, regardless of how those policies actually play out in the real world. So for my PhD, I still was concerned with corporate power. And I realized that economics wasn't going to teach me what I wanted to know. So I went into an interdisciplinary program called Social and Political Thought, where I wanted to study the real world economy, where powerful corporations uh, make a lot of the decisions that affect our lives. And then coming out of that degree, there's not a lot of jobs available for people with interdisciplinary degrees who are interested in corporate power. And so I, you know, did research here and there, did some research with Canadians for Tax Fairness, um, found Toby Sanger, the previous executive director, a very simpatico um, thinker, someone who was concerned with the same kinds of things that I was, and so ended up taking a job as a researcher with Canadians for Tax Fairness. Um, and now I'm the, the lead economist with the organization. All right. Well, thanks for that summary and you sharing your story of how you um, have how you've come to be a thought leader in an important organization in Canada's uh, policy ecosystem. So, um, before we jump into some uh, some of the substantive policy issues, I'm looking forward to chatting with you today about UT. I want to draw our listeners' attention to the fact that there are actually two tax organizations out there in Canada that have names that sound very similar. You're Canadians for Tax Fairness. The other is, is the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. And when Jen Squeeze was putting together our lab in partnership with the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation to investigate issues about how to disrupt some of the systemic troubles we were seeing with housing wealth inequality, we invited not only your organization, but Canadians for Tax... Uh, Can you're Canadians for Tax Fairness. And we also invited the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Can you just help me and others understand what's sort of the difference between those two organizations so if, if i if i try to be as fair as i can possibly be to canadian taxpayers federation uh they're the pro-market uh side of this they think that government should be as limited as possible and they identify tax as sort of the means by which government fairly and unfairly takes money from people. And so they're critical pretty much of almost every tax policy measure that the government offers. Um, our organizations are frequently on opposite sides of issues because generally we're advocating for ta more taxes at the upper end of our economic hierarchy. Uh, we think corporations should pay more taxes. They benefit a lot from public services that governments provide and they don't contribute their fair share. We think the wealthiest members of society should pay higher taxes because their wealth, as I mentioned before, it's not the outcome of their greater virtue, their greater hard work. Uh, and so redistribution is, is necessary to, to generate these fair outcomes, fairer outcomes. Canadian Taxpayers Federation would say that no, market outcomes, those are the proper outcomes. At most, you need a little bit of tinkering uh, around the edges. Um, we think that government is a much more uh, accountable body for uh, undertaking a lot of the service and goods provision that's needed that won't come through the market or that shouldn't come through the, the private sector. The private sector either won't provide it because it's not profitable or they'll 
will provide it in ways that don't ensure everyone has access. It will be provided in ways um, that provide the most uh, beneficial access to the people with the most money. Um, so they want less, we want more public provision. Uh, and so then our positions on taxes kind of reflect that. All right, so the two organizations have a different sense of sort of the place and role and scope of government in delivering outcomes that are important for society and to the degree that your organization often thinks that uh, more of our public goods need to be delivered or more of our goods need to be delivered publicly so that they're distributed fairly. That then brings you into the scope of talking about how taxation isn't a punishment or a penalty, but it's actually how we as a society pay for things that we really value and use on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so as I heard you, you chat about that at the beginning, it made me remember that when Jen Squeeze is talking about tax policy, especially these days when we're talking about adding taxation to high value homes like the one that I live in, sometimes we get some discouraging emails from people who are not aligned with that idea. And they often start by thinking, why are you punishing me by asking me to pay for a tax? And so uh, do you get that kind of narrative uh, at Canadians for Tax Fairness, where some people engage with you saying that, you know, policies around taxation are punishments? And if so, how do you how do you respond? Yeah, we certainly encounter that sort of reaction. And, and I, I get Kind of where people are are coming from in the sense of like who wants to pay more for something we don't want the price of anything ever to go up where it gets especially difficult when you're talking about government provision of things is you can't identify where oh well i'm receiving this and i'm paying this and so there's not that one-to-one -one connection it requires more uh sort of broad understanding of we all need to pitch in and so then the government can provide things that we all benefit from and so things like public education i don't just benefit from my own education i benefit from the existence of an educated public and so even if i don't have children even if i'm not you know going on to post-secondary institutions i want to still contribute to make sure that those institutions can provide goods and services to the public that I that I can benefit from but it's it's much more difficult to make those connections also people they see the unfairness that exists within the tax system and rarely will they identify themselves as well I'm you know in the absolute top more they'll say well I'm someone in the middle and what you're advocating for is going to affect me why aren't you advocating you know higher taxes for those at, at the top which is mostly where our focus goes our focus is mostly at making sure that those who have the greatest capacity to pay are asked to pay the most and so the more fairness you bring into the system and the more people can see that the system is fair the more receptive i think they will tend to be when it is their time to you know make make a greater contribution yeah, that's really interesting. I think right now, Generation Squeeze is a, leading with others a conversation about who's affluent in society. And there's no doubt that there can be extreme inequality amongst the uber, uber, uber affluent, like the Jeff Bezos and Elon Musks of the world. Um, and clearly, there, you know, there's efforts at, at play right now to figure out how to address those kinds of extreme inequalities. I think Jen Squeeze sometimes sort of steps into the fire when saying, you know, this language of we are the 99% is really important, but there's a lot of inequality within that 99%. 
And so folks who are in million dollar plus homes, um, you know, just access to secure housing these days is really transitioning uh, a sense of security that we'd often attributed to middle classness and income alone now can't kind of buy that uh, security in many of our major cities if you're starting out now by comparison with the past. But before I go too far down that road, <clears throat> when I think about the Canadian context right now during elections, I often hear political parties of all stripes offer more investment these days in things, <clears throat> pardon me, that they think that their constituency will view to be valuable, typically around medical care, often around income security, uh, important things that many of our family members draw upon. But we don't then go down the road of asking, well, how is the society we're going to pay for more? And so I start to worry that Canadian culture has evolved politically to say, please offer me more but don't invite me to the really important conversation about how we're going to pay for it and pay for it fairly. Do you see similar things in your, in your sense of the political space these days, or do you think I'm misrepresenting what's going on when I summarize it that way? I mean, for things that are being funded by the federal government, strictly speaking, they don't need our tax dollars to fund things because they issue our currency, then they can issue all of the currency that they need to pay for things. Once that currency is out in the economy, then it starts doing lots of other stuff. And one of the things it can start to do is start to push up prices of different goods. And this is, you know, part of the, the, the narrative right now, the main political economic narrative about inflation is that the government spent too much during the pandemic. There's too much money now out there in the economy. They're the reason that this inflation is happening. And so we need to raise interest rates as the way of, you know, tamping down this this growing demand. Our position is that there's actually another way to draw that excess money out of the economy. If we think there's too much money sloshing around, then taxes are the best way of bringing it out. And that's where we can now have the debate about, okay, you think there's too much money in the economy. Who do you think has too much money? Whose demand do you think should not be demanded? And a lot of the policies that are being advocated by those who say, well, it's this excess spending that is driving inflation, they don't want to answer that question. And the implicit answer from them is that it's the people at the bottom of the economic hierarchy. They're the ones who, you know, primarily benefited from CERB. Uh, they even benefited um, disproportionately from queues. The corporations were the main ones who benefited from that, but keeping people attached to their workplaces, providing them with emergency um, monthly income, all of this really helped those at the, the bottom of our, our economic hierarchy. And so these are the people that implicitly are now being blamed for the inflation, where if we think there's too much money in the economy, our organization thinks it's those at the top that should be asked or told. You have too much more needs to come from you. So I don't know if it's so much that people are asking for ever more from their government and not wanting to contribute to that. I think it comes back to this. Who is being asked to contribute? And are we seeing that those who can contribute the most are contributing the most. I don't know if you've had a chance to read Seth Klein's book, um, The Good War, kind of using World War II as an analogy for dealing with the climate crisis. He juxtaposes the difference in public support for World War I versus World War II. And in World War I, there was very little mass support for the Canadian war effort. And a big part of that was that the working class saw it's our children, it's us, 
and our children whose bodies are being sent. And it's our money that's being used to fight this war. In World War II, the lesson was learned. And so high, high taxes were imposed on profits, much higher income taxes were imposed. And the public was informed about how this was being done. And so people had a much greater sense that what's being asked of us is being fairly distributed. So I'm much, uh, uh, I'm much more accepting of the sacrifice that I'm having to make to undertake this war effort because I can see that those who have more are being asked to sacrifice more. And I think similar things need to happen now. Um, people can see how little taxes corporations pay. People can see how much the wealthy are able to take advantage of tax havens um, and not pay their fair share. Much more needs to be done very visibly so people see that, oh, those who have the most to, to contribute are contributing the most. And so now when I'm being asked to contribute, I'm ha happy to, or I, I accept that, that I need to do so. Got it. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. I think we could have a we could have a whole episode actually on you know the degree to which the investments made during uh, the pandemic were what uh, precipitated the inflation we're talking about now. But I won't take us down that road. Uh, let me bring us back to the, you know the really key theme you're raising about people's openness to contribute to taxation. This is how I'm in interpreting it. People's openness to contribute their fair share is dependent upon seeing others contributing their fair share and in proportion to their ability to contribute. And so I think that's a really important observation. And it has me think about the campaign that uh, Canadians for Tax Fairness right now is leading to close Canada's worst tax loopholes. And so I'm hoping you can tell me a little bit more about that campaign, and especially the fact that uh, the very worst of the worst loopholes that you identify is the capital gains exclusion. So um, tell us a little bit about why you think a buck is a buck and why you're trying to close our worst tax loopholes, especially the capital gains exclusion. So right now, income that you earn from work is 100% of that is subject to taxation. You will pay tax across all of that income. Income that you receive from buying and selling of assets known as capital gains only half of that is subject to income. Right off the bat, half of that income is excluded from taxation. And we think that's egregiously unfair since asset ownership is incredibly highly unequally distributed. The vast majority of assets are owned by those at the, at the top of the economic hierarchy. So the capital gains exclusion rate overwhelmingly benefits those who are already the wealthiest and serves to exacerbate the fact that unequal wealth ownership just perpetuates that inequality more or less mechanically. This was basically the point of Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 20th Century, was that wealth inequality just begets wealth inequality. And then you just make this even worse by saying, oh, well, half of the money that you receive from buying and selling assets, we won't subject, we won't subject half of that to, to taxation. So we think that that loophole absolutely should be closed as an obvious step towards greater fairness. 
Was it always the case that Canada exempted 50% of capital gains from taxation? Well, it used to be the case that all capital gains were exempted from taxation. And then we brought in a 50% rate. Then it went up, I believe, to 75%. Forgive me if these figures are off a little bit. Then it came down, I think, to something like 63%. And then it, it's been at 50% for for decades now. Um, and the issue you know, is continually revisited. And it's actually one of those things that economists kind of across the spectrum, even economists who I would disagree with about many issues, will often say that th this isn't the, the most effective and efficient way to uh, have a fair tax system. So there's not a lot of support for maintaining it other than the fact that the people who benefit are the most powerful and the most capable of you know, fighting against policies that they see as harming their interests. Wasn't some of the logic, though, of initially exempting some of the capital gains uh, when beginning to tax it was the logic that we still want to incentivize investments in productive parts of our economy. I can imagine that logic still, you know, still motivates some thinking in policy circles today. So as you're proposing, I believe, to not only raise the rate from 50 to 75%, but to actually have all capital gains now subject to taxation, how do you uh, respond to folks who focus on the theme of wanting to incentivize investment in productive parts of the economy? Yeah, this this is it's a it's a familiar claim that oh well by lowering taxes you raise investment and it's a claim without evidence. It's a claim that economists have been making pretty much for a century and in a century's worth of them successfully making this argument there's no evidence that it actually results in increased investment. The same argument is made for cutting corporate income taxes. Well, if we cut corporate income taxes, the claim is made, then corporations will actually invest more and we have cut corporate income taxes uh, dr dramatically through the 90s, and we see less uh, investment by corporations now than we did then. There are many factors that influence a corporation's decision to invest or that influence an individual's decision to invest. Taxes are not the primary um, part of the, the decision that they make. Plus, where we currently are at with our with our investment needs, um, much more needs to come from the government because we are needing the government to invest in things that aren't immediately going to generate the greatest profit, some of which won't even necessarily immediately generate any revenue as part of dealing with the multiple crises we have. We have an aging population, uh, the, the attempt to have that dealt with with ever more private long-term care. We saw what a horrendous decision that was. Uh, private long-term care in Ontario had far worse outcomes during the pandemic than the um, publicly run municipal facilities. Uh, and so the, the, the attempt to turn ever more to the private sector and increase their incentives by having lower taxes, it's not going to get us where, where we need to go. So cutting capital gains um, didn't achieve what it was supposed to achieve and raising capital gains, uh, the capital gains inclusion will take us towards a, a fairer system. The capital gains exclusion does lead directly to one of the key issues that Jen Squeeze has been working on as we aim to disrupt Canada's addiction to high and rising home prices. Because Interestingly, capital gains from the principal residences within which people live, they're entirely excluded uh, from taxation. So it's not just that half of any gain 
from that asset is included for taxation to your point about the overall capital gains exclusion loophole. But literally no capital gain from one's home in which they live is subject to taxation. And that makes housing wealth in our principal residences, I believe, sheltered from taxation like almost no other asset is in Canada. And I wonder, what does your organization think about that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those policies that more or less was was around before we existed. And, uh, you know, as Generation Squeeze full well knows, is just so fully entrenched in kind of Canadian expectations for, uh, you know, how their housing wealth will operate, that capital gains realize through their primary residence is going to be fully sheltered from any any taxation. And we we understand why people have this, you know, strong commitment to to maintain that for themselves, because uh, a house is such a unique asset. You know, it's not just an asset like you know owning government bonds or owning corporate equities or the other types of assets that people might have in their their portfolio. For most people, this will be by far the biggest asset that they own. But it's also the thing that they live in, and so they have this significant attachment to it. We think that capital gains, the the full exclusion for the primary residence, it's not. It's not good policy, but it's also understandable that you can't just immediately eliminate it um, for kind of cultural and, and political reasons, but it's absolutely something that needs to be addressed. Um, and as you mentioned earlier, Generation Squeeze is kind of stepping into the fire and, and I very much agree because you're talking about something that is so near and dear to people's hearts and is often having to tell people, well, Maybe you feel like you're, you know, solidly middle class, but in fact, the value of your home puts you, you know, makes means that you are part of the, you know, 1% that, that you that you don't think that you are a part of. And so this is a really difficult conversation to have. Um, and we really appreciate the work that, that Generation Squeeze is is doing on this and sort of the the multifaceted approach that it's, it's trying to take. I, I regularly invoke your metaphor of the silver shotgun, that there is no single policy solution that's going to work, um, that we need sort of everything on the table. And that's why I think the that the cap suggested for implementing a surtax is is such a smart um, move towards trying to address the issues that are introduced by having full exclusion of capital gains from primary residence ownership. Well, I really appreciate you, you're drawing attention to our stepping in the fire, and and um, we do get a lot of positive messages. Sometimes we get critique, but it is it is nice to find allies. And so the Canadians for Tax Fairness has been a really great ally on that front. And you, you mentioned Tommy Sanger earlier, and he did participate actively in our uh, solutions lab that um, that co-created this recommendation. We're now bringing with uh, boldness and sometimes a little bit of timidity into the world of politics for Canadians to chat about. One of the things I wanted to ask you about, though, is that if Canadians for Tax Fairness are successful with the buck is a buck campaign, in other words, closing the largest of the worst tax loopholes that you talked about, like the fact that only half of our capital gains are subject to taxation, if you're if you're successful to get now 100% of capital gains subject to taxation, 
but principal residences are still excluded, that would interestingly actually exacerbate the dynamics right now that are um, that are incentivizing Canadians to bank on our housing, not only to be a place to call home, but also a really good investment strategy that is sheltered from taxation compared to other things. And I wonder to what degree our organizations will need to be really careful in how we how we push for changing the exclusion rate generally, but also then say, but don't forget about housing in that context, because we could just be exacerbating some problems within the housing sector if we continue to exempt principal residences. Yeah, it's it's a it's an excellent point. The the assetization of housing is a is a serious concern. The turning of of what should be a home into a home second and a, and a financial asset first is is kind of a bigger cultural, fiscal, financial issue that that needs to be that needs to be dealt with. Houses were never intended to be de facto savings accounts for retirement. And that's essentially what they've become. People look at the the rising equity value in their house and kind of this is this is what will provide for them in the future. And then that starts drawing people's attention beyond their 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 primary residence um, to investing in housing more broadly, um, which is also implicated in foreign money that's looking to shelter itself in a relatively safe asset. So it's it's a it's a complicated landscape. I know you know that better than anyone. Um, and any policy change even ones that don't necessarily seem immediately connected to housing will always have these ripple effects and you can never fully anticipate what the the effects will be um and so how you know if we are successful in you know say raising capital gains inclusion to 75 percent certainly yes it could have this exacerbating effect by perhaps driving money uh, out of other assets and even more um, into housing, driving up housing prices even further, making housing even more inaccessible or home ownership, even more inaccessible for um, younger generations. That's absolutely a concern and something to to be forethought um, about. I don't think it's an argument against raising the capital gains exclusion. No, no, not at all. But the more we can anticipate what potential um uh, unanticipated uh, effects might come out of something like that. The the better we can do advocating for for making sure it's it's as done as fairly as possible. Yeah, I think that makes great sense. I think that there can be reason. You know, you, you shared arguments for why we would think about increasing the inclusion rate for capital gains, and those in no way, shape, or form need to be deterred by the fact that housing has this uniquely sheltered status in our taxation system. It simply, you know, gives us further reason to draw attention to the uniquely sheltered status of principal residences and what that, you know, how that incentivizes people's thinking generally, and then how that connects to other tax policy changes we're going to make elsewhere at different times. I'm, I, you've chatted with us, or you've, you've referred briefly to the surtax idea that we have put out there as we are entering the, the fire of Canadian public discourse on taxation. And other listeners to our Hard Truth uh, podcast will know we've chatted about it in the past, this idea that we'd have a surtax on home value above a million dollars for about the 10% of 10 to 12% of homes, uh, households that are, are living in homes that are over a million dollars. We still often get these emails, everybody lives in a million dollar home. It's, no, it's not true. Only 10 to 12% of households are. 
Um, we ultimately, as a working group, proposed the surtax rather than changing the capital gains exclusion of uh, principal residences at this moment, because in many respects, our dialogue with Canadians is motivated in to address the inequalities that have already been created. So over the last several decades, many people have accrued a great deal of wealth, myself included, as home prices have risen. And if we're to change the capital gains exclusion of principal residences right now, it would be on a go-forward basis, most likely. So we'd say, henceforth, we will start counting capital gains from principal residences, which may be a very good public policy choice to make. But from the Gen Squeeze standpoint, we would still be missing the fact that many large uh, windfalls have already been acquired in people's homes. And if we don't figure out a way to invite those who have acquired those windfalls to potentially contribute more uh, so that we can build deeply affordable housing and build some of the uh, cooperative housing that we need and pay for some of the extended medical care and long-term care, et cetera, that our aging population needs. If we don't tap into the wealth that was already accrued through housing, we're going to miss something so important and leave untouched inequalities. How do you think, uh, from the standpoint of Canadians for Tax Fairness, about that judgment call we made to think about, you know, trying to address previous windfalls uh, as a first step before thinking about the principal residence inclusion more generally? Yeah, that that point about how if we, you know, if we addressed the the, the current full exclusion for primary residences would sort of bake in gains that aren't just kind of in there in in in, in how they've been distributed. Um, I, I hadn't thought about sort of that that aspect of it. Uh, my thought on the surtax was that it's it's much more politically palatable um, because that is also true because it's you know identifying this demarcating line that everyone recognizes gets into you know people who are well off. You know if you if you own a million dollar home then you have an asset that ha- can provide you with a lot of well-being. And the, the, the surtax, as proposed, as I understand it, recognizes that there are you know, retired couples sitting on homes that are worth a million or more dollars who are pensioners and have low income. And so if the surtax were levied immediately and had to be paid now, then yes, could, could be a real strain. So deferring it um, until the moment of sale or until the moment of, say, inheritance um, with deemed disposition it is, is a way to, to implement this much more fairly. Um, and so I, I think the surtax was a really good kind of compromise solution and a way just to be more kind of creative in in talking about tax policy as we deal with the multiple crises that we face we need more tax creativity we tend to think about the taxes that currently exist as sort of all that ever could exist and there are so many more tax options um, that should be discussed so for example i i was once interviewed in my capacity uh, about singapore's plan to implement a multiple home ownership tax um and you know having having a progressive taxation on on owning more than one or you know maybe more than two homes as a way of you know stopping housing from becoming so much an asset first and a and a home second so the surtax i think is is good for lots of different reasons i hadn't thought about the sort of bake in uh, problem if you were to just eliminate the ex- 
full exclusion for primary home ownership. So just one more, yeah, good reason to have have adopted the the surtax and then think about how might this relate going forward if we do recognize that full exclusion for primary home ownership is not great policy and needs to be rolled back, addressed, changed, altered in some way. Well, as our time is coming to a close, I want to uh, return to a theme you raised earlier in our conversation about you know, the language that I raise, you know, sometimes we get people saying, oh, you're punishing me by talking about, you know, changing the taxes that I may owe. And you help to reframe that and say, you know, people are going to be more open to contributing their fare if they see that that expectation of contributing fairly is spread across the income spectrum. And I find that really compelling right now. So I'd, I'd like to just end with that theme and a little bit more of a discussion there. At Gen Squeeze, we, we often talk about a tax shift talking about taxing more the things we want less of, like pollution, uh, housing inequality, etc., and tax less some of the things we want more of, like, you know, better incomes for middle and lower earners. And so I wonder, how does your organization, Canadians for Tax Fairness, uh, talk about, you know, the tax system sort of writ large and finding the right balance throughout the income spectrum so that, or not just the income spectrum, throughout the spectrum of affluence, because today we're talking a lot about wealth and you're talking a lot about closing the capital gains tax loophole, which is really about wealth. So how do you, how do you find the right balance of measuring affluence across the spectrum and designing the tax system that will strike that balance of fairness and efficiency going forward? I, I think it requires you know, the, the the maximum possible openness and accountability for our tax system, talking to people about what our tax system is intended to do and how we seek to achieve those ends. And then recognizing that there's never going to be just a final, here are the set of tax policies that work to make our economy function properly and fairly. It will need to be continually dealt with. Um, you know, I, I mentioned that I, I come from an academic background, and for a long time, I avoided thinking about policy because one of the issues with policy is that the moment it's implemented, it's immediately failing in some way. It's immediately missing someone it's intended to help. It's unintent, you know, intentionally harming someone. It's it's never going to be perfect, and so it needs to be an ongoing process of figuring out how do we improve this. Uh, and I think. I, I don't think our government has been open and honest enough with people about the fact that like th there's no kind of there's no kind of final scientific answer that that we now have have a handle on that no we're just gonna keep tinkering and and we need participation as much as possible to make sure that the ongoing tinkering is benefiting the most possible people. Um, I could head off in all kinds of different directions about how, how I think that should be enacted. Um, but trying to just generate greater knowledge about how our actual tax system works, I think is, is really, really key. Cause as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, like I understand people's, um, anti-tax sentiments. There's actually a bit of a sort of, you know, I say that one of the reasons why we have taxes is because it, it is a shared experience. It's something that you can complain to your neighbor about. Like we both, you know, oh, have you seen this? This We both have to do this. And, and so it kind of gives you a sense of, of solidarity with each other. As long as we recognize that, again, 
you know, the people who can pay the most, they are the ones that are paying the most. And government is making use of these resources to provide us with goods and services that truly are benefiting us. So I, for my PhD research, I, I looked a lot at kind of cultural history during World War II, when, as mentioned, you know, taxes were incredibly important for the war effort, but making people aware of how taxes were being implemented to keep them supportive of the war effort so they didn't feel like they were being unfairly asked to contribute more than what was their fair share. And a lot of people during that time, even though they were having to sacrifice in all sorts of different ways, said it was it was a a joyous time because we were in this together. We were sacrificing together. I'm giving something up. I know my neighbor is giving something up. I know the rich people who live up on the top of the hill, they're also giving something up. So that sense that this is a fair system is incredibly important. And that requires improving people's trust uh, in government. We've had decades of just baseline anti-government rhetoric from pretty much every quarter. So even governments themselves, the political parties, almost apologize for the fact that they even have to exist and we will try to stay out of your life as much as possible rather than being saying, no, we're a powerful institution that's more accountable than any other powerful institution in our society. And we provide essential goods and services that could not be provided through any other mechanism. And your taxes contribute to our ability to, to do that. So there's entire narratives that need to change. I'm not a communications expert. I'm not an expert on kind of effective rhetoric. Um, but I, I think a lot of the, the discourse around kind of the relationship between markets and governments, all of that um, needs to change. And often when I'm talking to sort of lay people who may uh, reflexively be anti-government, anti-tax and talk about the necessity for public provision, um, people are on board. They recognize that this, that this needs to happen. Corporations aren't going to do it. We don't have a lot of other institutional options besides government and that taxes are part of the process to get that public provision to us. Well, Dr. Titi Kotrin, that might be the the right place to end. Uh, I had a whole bunch of other questions to line up, but to be honest, I think that that is, a, that is an impassioned place to end for someone who self-defines as not being a communicator. But I think it helps me uh, personally think through what's involved in trying to combat some of the cynicism that is common in Canadian culture these days with regards to politics. Um, and when there's cynicism in regards to politics, it's harder to have these conversations about taxation that are integral to our abilities to fix some of the systems that are broken, whether it's the broken generational system that Jen Squeeze often talks about and how it plays out in our housing system, in our climate system, in our budgets from governments, etc. Or as we're trying to fight systemic racism and classism and sexism and heterosexism. So thank you so much for joining Hard Truth today. Thank you for uh, also sharing some of the hard work of being out there sharing hard truths about the importance of public policy and the need to raise revenue for them and do so in fair ways. And thank you to your organization for the collaborations you've been doing in the past with Gen Squeeze, in particular with our work on trying to reduce housing wealth inequality. And thank you very much for the work that Gen Squeeze 
is doing. We are a small organization and there's more issues to be covered than we could possibly cover by ourselves, that there are tax discussions to be had that often we feel like we're not able to fully uh, jump into. So collaborating with Jen Squeeze has been a great way to get us talking about this stuff, but also having others who are talking about this stuff in ways that, that we that we support. Wonderful. Onwards. Have a great afternoon. And I hope our listeners are having a great day. Hi, everyone. This is Umer again, the guy you heard at the very beginning, here to help conclude this episode. I want to thank you for listening. If you have any feedback about anything you've heard here or in previous episodes, you can write to us at info at gensqueeze.ca. Remember to rate and review the podcast on Apple and other platforms if it's possible to rate and review it there. But Apple, I think, tends to be the, the major platform that, uh, that has the reviewing and rating. And yeah, let other people know about the podcast if you enjoy it and you think that they will like it too. Uh, otherwise, we'll see you next time. Thanks again for tuning in.